0: Hello and welcome to the Irish Fire Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Halton. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and financial independence enthusiast sharing my financial freedom journey. Stay tuned and welcome aboard. So in today's episode, I talk with Megan AKA Miss Money Hacker. Megan is originally from Canada, but she's now living in Cork and she has the blog MissMoneyHacker.com, which I will link to in the show notes. Megan is one of the co hosts of the Financial Independence Ireland meetup group in Cork. So if you are based around the Cork area, then by all means become a member of the group. And when they have their next event, then you can certainly go along and meet her face to face. In this episode, we talk all sorts of stuff, but uh, largely around her own background into how she has put herself in a position where she can potentially be financially independent within five years. She is a new mother, so we talk about financial independence and children. She's also an environmentalist. So she gives us some great insights into how she approaches financial independence when it comes to her environmental interests. Finally, we touch on how she has set herself up as a contractor and some of the advantages that she's found since becoming a contractor. So I hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, if you have any questions, reach out to me at michael at firepodcast.ie. Otherwise, we'll cut over to the episode now. So yeah, welcome Megan to the show. It's it's great to have you on.
1: Thanks. Great to be here.
0: Let's start with the obvious question. When did you start pursuing financial independence?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a bit of a mixed answer there because it's not straightforward. Um, You know, I found out about the FIRE movement maybe two years ago, funnily enough, through a radio show here in Ireland on the Ryan Turbity Show. I was on my way to work one day, listening to the radio, and uh, on came this Canadian woman who is pursuing FI herself. Uh, She was on a beach in Malta, I think at the time, it was January here. I got to work and was just totally taken up by the idea. I did a lot of number crunching and tried to figure out when it would be able to um, retire or be financially free. Uh, It was a long ways off initially, but since I've done a bit more research, it's um, that that number has come down. In terms of on the path to FI, I suppose we were on that path before we knew what to call it, um I've always kind of been decent enough with money, tried not to do the lifestyle inflation, tried not to spend more as I was earning more, you know, went from being a student to being a backpacker to then coming back paying off the backpacking debt, saving for a house, then moving back to Ireland, saving for a wedding, saving for kids. so I mean we've always kind of been drawing budgeting, trying to save. And, uh, and in doing so, we've built up a bit of equity that's got us to the point where we're at now, where we're not as far off from FI uh, since we only found out about it two years ago.
0: Excellent. And I know you've mentioned to me one stage when we met, and we actually met up at uh, the Pensions Awareness Week. So if anybody was uh, down there in Cork, that's where I met Megan for the first time. So I know you, you mentioned then that you were sort of had a five-year plan when it came to financial independence. Would you mind touching on that a little bit?
1: sure uh so for us i mean we're trying to figure out now where to put our money it's always been a problem traditionally you know we were like okay let's put it into a mortgage let's um put it into retirement savings plans or rsps or tfsas as they're called in canada or pension plans here in ireland and those were really the only things we knew about we didn't know about investing it seemed like something that was out of reach for us or too complicated or too risky But then, you know, once we found out about the the FIRE movement and how people are investing in passive investments, and they've explained it once they've done a bit more research, and it's actually not as scary as I thought. So now we're starting to look at putting money into investments where we can get passive income and things like that. So. We have a bit of equity already built up into those traditional uh, methods that we were working on before. um, But now we're in a position where we can start putting money into um, passive ETFs and peer to peer lending and things like that that I wouldn't have, have known about before. Basically, when I crunched the numbers, it looked like, okay, well, we can actually achieve this in in potentially five years if once we both go back to work. So I'm currently on maternity leave. But once we're both earning income again, um, you know, we should be in a position without anything, you know, recession coming and one of us losing our jobs or both of us losing our jobs or anything like that, all things going well, saving at the rate that we're saving at now, we should be in a position to be financially independent in five years time. Now, you know, we may have another kid in between now and then, we, we're not sure that that'll delay it by a year or two. And so I'm 34 at the moment, five years from now, that'll be 39. That's years off being able to access a pension i've looked at other options in terms of even though the pension is more tax efficient way uh, i've looked at both models i've looked at you know contributing to both a pension and investments i've looked at contributing to just investments uh, and just a pension using the equity that we've built so far drawing down on the equity that we have built up for the 16 years until i can access the pension if it's an executive pension at 50 and It's working out that it's actually, even though I'm not putting away as much as I would as if I was being more tax efficient putting into a pension, I'm actually going to have more in the pot after 30 years um, by investing less tax efficiently into ETFs and things like that, including the high 41% exit tax compared to if we were to draw down on what we have now and then uh, access the pension at 50 After 30 years, we would have more by doing the the straightforward ETFs. So that's kind of one option. Again, that's just for me to have my passive income, uh, my expenses covered on my own. So my husband would still be working. The other option is if we continue both working for additional three years, so in eight years time, we'd have enough to cover both of our expenses. Or there's a thing called partial financial independence where you can draw down higher than the safe withdrawal rate. So say we would withdraw 6% uh, rather than the 4% or the 3.5%, but then still work a little bit. Like we'd only need to top up the portfolio by 10,000 euro a year. So, you know, we could work part time, we could pick up jobs or contracts. Every now and then, just to top that up and it, and in that case, we'd be in a position in three to four years so and all of those actually are including not selling the house that we're in now in Ireland. There's a few different ways you can look at it. We're by no means sticking to those year's timelines. I'm constantly changing my plans. I decide on a monthly basis to do something randomly different. You know, I think part of the financial independence journey is. You have to savor the journey. You can't just look at the end goal. Um, and so part of that is, like you've mentioned many times, how time is the most important thing. And it absolutely is. We may be looking to do both working part time instead and, and doubling the time to financial independence, but gaining that time at home with, with our kids. So we're open to all kinds of options, but it's nice to have the general goal in mind um, that we're working towards so that we'll have the option.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, I think you've pretty much hit it on the head that all of this is about giving yourself options. And it's not always a matter of knowing exactly what you want to do and exactly the number and exactly the day yeah, or the month that you're going to necessarily attempt to retire or even cut back. But it's about giving yourself that option to potentially do that. And I know for me, my phi number has probably increased over the last few months, as in I'm starting to feel like it needs to be a bit higher than what I had initially hoped. But at the same time, nothing fundamentally changes because you're still doing it on a month-to-month basis anyway. And what I mean by that is you're still just, you know, you're still looking at the short-term goals. And as you kind of progress and as the years go past, that's when you kind of sit back and go, right, well, look, this is this has been great. I've put this much away. And now we're only exactly what you've discovered. You're only, what, potentially five years away if you wanted to. I guess the second point I'd, I'd make is, retirement at under 40, which by the way, you'd be probably one of the only people to actually have achieved it under 40 if you you do it. But retirement at 40, you've still got so much time, right? And that's where you can start looking at some side projects. You mentioned making that extra 10 grand up if you wanted to. I know that you've got a blog on financial independence, and we'll touch on that a little bit later on, but that could give you the opportunity to say, work on that or write a book on the stuff for you mentioned that you've always been passionate about money and always been good with money. So there's an opportunity there to share your wisdom with others. So there's so much potential and you've got so much time that ultimately what you're doing is you're giving yourself those options. So you're not selling your time for somebody else's dream. You get to start living your own dream. Is that is that fair to say, do you think?
1: That's exactly it.
0: Let's touch a little bit on family and FI, because obviously this is something that I have that I've been encountering. I've got three children myself. And uh, I mean, kids are expensive, right? And, uh, you know, that's an ongoing ongoing challenge. And I know that you've only recently had uh, a baby. So congratulations on that. But obviously, you know, you're on maternity leave at the moment. So, you know, that's probably put things a little bit in a different perspective you're probably also thinking to yourself, my goodness, I can't even imagine leaving this child and going back to work at this stage. So, you know, there's probably all these sort of feelings around that. So how has that impacted on your thoughts with financial independence? And how has it changed your goals, I guess, going forward? And, you know, what sort of changed ultimately through having children?
1: So there's a few things. I think that, um, you know, obviously things like uh, having a will in place, getting life insurance, looking into things like income protection, insurance. My research into investments has obviously taken a spin towards looking at inheritance tax and estate planning, whereas I never would have been concerned about those things before. So that's one thing, but then in terms of goals for FI, those have, those have shifted. I mean, it's all about time. So the whole thing, the whole essence of being financially free is that you can have the freedom to do what you want with your time. I personally really like work. I really like the job that I do. So maybe part of being financially free will be to continue working, but it's to have the choice. So if I want to stay home, I can. If I want to go part-time, scale back, I can. I don't have to be stuck to a uh, uh, living paycheck to paycheck and and living life, you know, shackled to a, a desk if whether I want to or not. You know, originally it was like, okay, I found out about, about FI, now I want to try and get there as quickly as possible, just to say I did it as quickly as I could. When you have a kid, or maybe even before I had a kid, you know, you kind of realize, well, no, there's a bit more to it. It's You have to enjoy the journey. You have to enjoy the time that you have on your way there. So in terms of costs, absolutely, kids add to your costs, But, and I may be a bit naive at this point. <laughs> You know, I've, I've read a book recently called Quit Like a Millionaire. was written by the, the woman who I uh, first heard about FI from. They have a blog called Millennial Revolution, and uh, she's Canadian. She mentioned she had a whole section in the book about, you know, how kids aren't as expensive as they're made out to be. So they went through, like, the major expense criteria. So there's, you know, housing. So, for example, they had come up with something like, you know, this is the cost per square foot. And if you have a kid, you need an extra bedroom and that's this much and so on and so forth. But I mean, for us, we were living in a two bedroom apartment before we had a kid, we bought a house, it's a three bedroom townhome, and it's actually cheaper than we were paying for rent. Um, And that's everything included. That's like property taxes, everything that you wouldn't have to pay if you were renting. Food, definitely. We have a, a young boy, um, so I know for a fact as he gets older, he will probably eat us out of house and home. But for the moment, uh, you know, we're we're looking at doing things like uh, shopping at Lidl and eating less meat, eating less processed foods, doing weekly meal planning. Um, so those things are not only cheaper, but they're also healthier. So it's kind of two birds, one stone. Childcare—that's obviously a big one. It's expensive here in Ireland. In terms of our crunching the numbers to financial independence, we've included the additional cost of, say, 1000 a month towards childcare. We're kind of winging this one. We don't know what we're going to do childcare-wise. Um, my husband actually just got approved for parental leave, so he's going to be taking the full six months or five months or whatever it is. Once I go back to work, we'll be closer to the ECCE scheme before our son goes into subsidized childcare, uh, where you get three hours a day paid for by the government, Uh, so that'll lower the costs. Our number crunching has included uh, an extra 500 or so per month in terms of childcare costs, so we have accounted for an increase, but I don't know in in terms of each category. Then transport-wise, we still have an old car. We have managed to fit, it's ridiculously spacious, or we've managed to fit ridiculous things like we have fit a bike, a car seat, two adults, two kayaks, (laughs) all in one little car. It's a Yaris, so it's an 05 Yaris, actually. And it's still tipping away. We haven't needed to increase the size of our car because we have a kid. Even if we had another kid, I'd say we'd still be able to fit them into that one car. So that cost hasn't gone up. Clothing-wise, and we'll probably get into the sustainability things, I think, a little later. But um, we're buying, either getting hand-me-downs or we're buying second-hand. Uh, So that significantly reduces costs there. Gifts and toys, we've kind of um, been really awkward and said to all of our friends and family not to buy us gifts, or if they do buy us gifts, that please do buy secondhand. We actually prefer secondhand, you know, so that reduces costs there. And for books, we go to the library, um, which you actually pay for through your tax money. So, you know, you might as well make use of them. And then education-wise, somebody I had read somewhere that you need something like 40,000 euro to get your kid through college, even in Ireland where it's mostly paid for by the government. My plan for that would be to instead of say I could reach FI in five years, I'll work until I earn, say, 20,000 more. I'll put that into an investment in my son's name, let that grow. And then by the time he's 18 or 20, um, it'll have grown to an acceptable level to help him through his college years. But those are kind of all the the different expense areas where I think the cost won't be that much higher. And again, I may be naive going into this, but that's how we're going to try to to keep the cost down.
0: I think for me, the the biggest thing here is that your kids will try and fleece you wherever they get a chance when they get older. So, your ability to teach them wisely will certainly make a big difference. And I've to kind of touch on this before on the show. I I kind of think that when I was single and didn't have kids. I had a huge entertainment expenses, like to keep myself entertained, I'd have to go to the movies, the pub, um, you know, out with friends all the time, out for meals. Whereas once you've got kids, your entertainment is your children. So I think there is an argument to say that your entertainment expenses will decrease because you've suddenly got all this entertainment through your children. So uh, that's certainly one aspect of it. And just on the on the grocery bills, we've been doing Tesco online shopping. But we kind of, and that's convenient when you've got kids because nobody likes screaming brats in a supermarket, which uh, we often, (laughs) it happens when we have three of them. We found that we'd get 150 euros worth of Tesco uh, shopping and in four days it would be gone. I mean, we have three boys, so you can only imagine what that's like we're always shopping at Aldi anyway, as our kind of second grocery shop. But then we've also started going to the like, so I don't know if you have it in Cork, but we have here, we have like a home savers, which is kind of your bargain shopping place. And you can get kind of cheaper stuff there for the muesli bars and your granola bars, as they're called in Ireland and all those sort of things. So we've started to kind of find ourselves shopping around a little bit more. Yes, it's more time, but it ultimately does save us probably 50 to 100 euros a week, which is, um, which is fairly significant when you consider that that is after tax money. So I'm 100% with you on the meals, you know, when you can actually plan your meals out and the fact that you've got time to do it and think about it rather than just, you know, picking up one of those processed pies or whatever. So that's certainly valuable advice there. I'm going to come back to contractor versus employee because there's a couple of things you touched on when it came to the environment. And obviously I picked up on a couple of things you mentioned about secondhand toys and things like that. So So I guess, Megan, when it comes to the environment and financial independence, what sort of things would you be doing or or consciously doing when it comes to either picking investments that might be more environmentally friendly, or is there anything else in particular that that you kind of handle? I know you mentioned some things when it comes to reducing costs through secondhand toys and so on, but do you kind of see it as one thing, as as an environment and investing or environment and money hand in hand, or are there two separate things that kind of you're fighting against all the time, or how, how do you kind of see it?
1: There's a bit of both there, so I think, um you know, financial dependence, sustainability, minimalism, they're all kind of movements that go hand in hand um for the most part because generally you're trying to reduce your consumption, so you're trying to cut your expenses, which means you're consuming less, which means you're consuming fewer resources which are required to build whatever it is you're buying, and obviously, that goes into I don't know if you've heard of this Earth overshoot day. It's basically where we have they've been tracking it for i don't know how many years 30 years or something like that where they track how far into the year we actually use up all the resources that the earth can produce in that 12 months and we are currently at July 29th so we are very soon going to need two earth's worth of resources to sustain the consumption rate that we're going at. So when you start opening your eyes to these kind of things and stats, it can be very overwhelming, but from a consumption side of things, like some of the things we're doing are buying fewer groceries that come in any packaging. Uh, so again, it's not only cheaper, it's healthier uh, and better for the environment. So win, win, win. We buy soap bars instead of plastic liquid soap. We get refillable dish soap. We get laundry soap and cardboard boxes. Uh, rather than plastic. We don't need bin liners anymore um, because of compost. So all of the wet stuff that used to go into our bin is actually going into the compost. So we actually don't need bin liners anymore. Obviously cheaper as well, because we're not buying that stuff. Everything that you would typically buy as a once-off product and you throw away after a single use, we started to look at all of those things and go, okay, well, we can buy this one thing once-off or maybe something you have to replace every few years. And then, as you mentioned, um, investing sustainably. So at the moment, we are not investing sustainably. A good chunk of the ETFs that I'm invested in are in oil and gas. But I do think naturally the market, so ETFs spread across the market. And if the markets start to shift, which I think they will in the next few years, we have to get our act together. And I think the tide is turning there, but people are starting to. invest more heavily in renewables and things like that so i think the etfs that i'm invested in are actually going to change in the makeup their countries are divesting from fossil fuels and things like that so eventually the etfs will become more sustainable but in the meantime i am also researching more sustainable um, etfs uh, tracker funds and there are some and you would think that Investing in those things would mean fewer returns, but actually they've done studies and they actually return equal, if not better, to non-sustainable options. So there's a company called, oh, what are they called? US SIF. They do a study on sustainable investments. And in a 2018 report, they found that 26% of the US market is actually invested in environmental, social and governance criteria uh, are investments that fall under the ESG criteria. So that's not just climate change, but it's things like human welfare and that they're not investing in guns and warfare and all this kind of stuff. So I am researching those. I haven't invested in any yet. Um, but if I do find something in Ireland that I can invest in that would be more sustainable, I'll definitely start putting more of my um, investments into those.
0: For me, when it comes to investing in companies that are you know, actively doing things for the environment, from a complete business point of view, I just don't understand how this hasn't happened sooner when if you can make something that is renewable, surely then the zero marginal cost for something is going to be better. If you are having to dig coal out of the ground to then burn it to produce electricity, for me, that's such a short-term solution. I just don't understand why we wouldn't go for the solar solution or the tidal solution or whatever other renewable option that there is. And so I think the world is slowly starting to cotton onto this, particularly with things like electric vehicles and things like that. But um, it has been something which has probably taken... A decade longer than it probably probably needed to, in my opinion, anyway. So I want to quickly touch back on something that you mentioned at the Cork meetup in relation to contractor versus employee. And uh, I know you've listened to the show, so you know I touch on this stuff all the time. But talking to you, it sounds like you've been able to set yourself up to kind of, I guess, work full-time as a contractor. And we don't need to go into details about who the employer is, by the way, uh, unless you want to. But how were you able to kind of negotiate that deal? You obviously looked at both options. You know, you kind of had the option to do both. You chose contractor in this case. What were the reasons behind that? Um, what advice would you give to anybody? I get a lot of questions on this from people who are employed and want to go to the contracting route. Obviously, you get that company pension option, which is, uh, for me, one of the best loopholes that there is in Ireland when it comes to actually being able to move a whole lot of money into into a tax-free pension. So what sort of advice would you be giving to people who, I guess, have been thinking about this stuff? You know, you're obviously doing it. And I guess the reasons to why you wanted to do it in the first place.
1: Sure. Um. I mean, for me, I was kind of pushed into it. Um. I won't go too much into the details, but I was given the choice of either go contracting or or you're out of a job, and then was come back to saying, well, actually, no, uh, a full time position has opened up, so you can go permanent. And I just I had done the research at that point and said, well, no, actually, I think I will give it a try. I probably I probably wouldn't have done it myself if I hadn't been pushed in that direction, just for the initial, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what was involved, but because I was pushed into it, I'm actually so glad I was because when I crunched the numbers, your take home is way higher. There's things that you need to do to work out your, your daily rate. So basically you, you build in your, your daily rate to account for all the things that you lose for being a permanent employee. The one thing that you probably, you do lose by going contracting is security. No matter how much you think you're contributing to the company, no matter how valuable you think you are, even if you're in a unionized environment, yes, it's definitely harder to get rid of you, but, but there's no real guarantees in life, especially in this economy. That false sense of security, I think by being permanent, like if you, if you're going to be made redundant, you're going to be let go anyway. So. Like the two week notice for a contractor is is much less notice than you'd probably get, or even with that you know whatever money that you'd get from a redundancy, but you build that into your daily rate that's why you get the higher take home and by getting the higher take home, you can build up that cushion so that if you do get let go and you need to go to another project a you can go find more work, but b you have that cushion to fall back on. so the whole security piece I think is it's a false sense of security that you're giving up in terms of the pros and cons. So yes, you have a higher take home, small things, but actually end up being kind of a big thing is like, you don't have to clock in and out. You don't have to partake in performance reviews. You don't have to do like those kind of piddly things that regular full-time employees have to do. The cons, again, these are little, but it's all part of the environment that you're working in. So, you know, like. Employees get to contribute to social clubs or sports and social clubs where they get like Easter eggs at Easter time or they get to go to Christmas parties and they have ice cream days in the summer and things like that, which you can't partake in. So you're, you kind of get left out of those things. You don't get the benefits so you don't get and the same securities that a full time worker would, which I think is what the government is kind of trying to crack down as it's saying that contractors aren't aren't being protected in the way that they should be. And there's more paperwork. So you have to either hire an accountant or do your own paperwork, like your accounting for every quarter or every month or whatever it is. You have to file your VAT returns and things. If you open up the company, if you're just dipping your toe in the water and you're not sure if you're going to continue with it, you could open up an umbrella company. There's companies that actually will set up the company for you for a fee, um, and they'll do all your accounting you just send your time into them and they'll send the invoice into the company for you. They do a lot of hand-holding uh, in that way. And then like they say, yeah, you don't get some of the benefits like the executive pension, uh, whereas if you have your own company, you do. there's far less paperwork in doing uh, an umbrella company. So yeah, there, there's options out there. I mean, you can dip your toe in the water by starting up an umbrella company. If you have the option to go contracting somewhere, you do kind of have to be really adaptable. And I think because you're a contractor, people have higher expectations of you to perform uh, more than if you were to start out as a permanent employee. So it's not for everyone. Uh, You kind of have to decide whether those pros and cons, you have to weigh them up for your own situation. But for me, it's definitely worked out. I, I would have a very hard time going back, I think, now that I know the difference.
0: Yeah, very interesting. And I mean, I know for me, um, and you probably know from listening to the show previously, is that I've been I've been freelancing for 15 years. I've never had more than 30 days work lined up in that time, but I've never not had work. I'm a firm believer that the job security thing is is just a false front. I have know people who have lost their job with 30 days notice and they had absolutely nothing. Whereas at least me as a freelancer, I'm always thinking about the next 30 days and always thinking about that plan B. In many cases, I'm probably I I probably have better security than than an employee would, but yeah, is it worth taking less money to get an Easter egg once a year or go to the Christmas party? I know the answer to that. When you mentioned that you're expected to be more efficient and potentially work harder, I think is what you're somewhat implying. Gee, shouldn't we all be doing that anyway? uh, Is my answer to that? So, I truly believe that we should be paid for what we actually do and what we actually output. When you're contracting and you're paid for what you do. That will ultimately give you the ability to to move to part-time, because when you actually start working and and getting paid for your output rather than the work you're actually doing, then you will start to see how it's actually possible to reduce your workload. And I I know I get a lot of people asking me how I was able to go part-time. The truth is my actual day rate, even part-time, probably is more than what the average employee is taking home. So it really is a case where I've been able to push my efficiency to such a point where I can still pump it out for four hours and and take more than the average person is is taking a home who had a job. So that's that's kind of the thought pattern, and I think you've probably touched on that in the sense of you said you couldn't see yourself going back, and that's probably because you've realised this and you've you've enjoyed the the higher take home pay. Don't worry about the redundancy. Don't worry about the. Do you, do you get holiday pay actually? By the way. No. Okay, yeah, you see again, you'll get used to not worrying about that, honestly, you'll get used to it,
1: you know when you're working and you get your twenty days or your however many days, and it never would have occurred to me before to take off unpaid leave. It's always an option, but it never would have occurred to me, whereas now I'm not paid for the for the public holidays. that's because I've built it into my daily rate, so technically, I am, but on paper, I'm not, so yeah, you just you justify it in that way and you know, I can pick and choose. I can say, well, actually, no, I'm just going to take Friday off or, you know, and I know I'm not going to be paid for that, but it doesn't matter.
0: <laughs> I, I think that's really interesting. And I do know people who are employed who haven't gone on holiday with me or haven't gone to a sports event because, mate, I'm really sorry, I don't have enough days left. And I'm like, and I've actually said to them, just take an unpaid day. And I think it's almost more the hassle of going to their boss and saying, look, can I take an unpaid day? Than actually anything else, but it's amazing how that mindset changes. You were talking earlier about the fact that you you know you, you would have these goals and you'd achieve them, and you you know were you going to just throw everything in and go all in on uh, you know work really hard, or were you going to just cut down and work less? And I had a goal years ago, so this is back when I was earning less money. My initial goal had been to cut down to a five-hour working day and still make a, a relatively high uh, income but also take 40 days off a year. So I was actually going to give myself 40 holidays a year. And the funny thing is I did it. It took me about 18 months to do. So this is even before I went to double my income after that. Uh, and I'll come back to that as well. So it took me a long time to do it. And I remember the day I finally did it. And what I mean by that is I'd finally crunched the numbers. I would finally found a client, the clients who were paying me enough money to do it. And I would finally had all my calendar done. So I'd had the 40 days off. I was so depressed. And it was like, I should be so happy. Why am I so depressed? And it was the strangest thing. And I think it was a case where I'd been so obsessed with the goal that all I had actually put all my energy into was the goal. And now that I'd done it, I suddenly had nothing. And I I often comment on the show that one of my biggest fears is working your way up to 65 and then doing nothing. It's because of that exact uh, situation that happened to me, which is why now I've cut down to part time to actually start living my retirement now so that I know that that's not going to happen to me again. I think you've touched on a lot of stuff related to this, and you know, I've obviously had that experience to kind of get me there in terms of seeing why this is so important, but why not take that day off? You know, why why limit yourself to 20 days? For me, that's the most depressing thing ever, right? Here's your 20 days, you know, you've got a plan only around that, and also, I mean, the whole thing, and I don't know how how it works for you, but even with the bank holidays, sometimes it's a little bit sad when I have to go to work on a bank holiday and I see everybody else uh, working. but the odds of a good sunny day in Ireland on a bank holiday, it's like 10 to 1. And when it is actually a sunny bank holiday, I'll take that off. But like May bank holiday, October bank holiday, most of the time they're miserable. And I'd rather be at work and actually save a sunny day for the summer months. So giving yourself that freedom, I think is is valuable. And the fact that you probably wouldn't see yourself going back is great. So thank you so much for sharing that, Megan. Look, I know you've got a blog. So do you want to share with the listeners how they can reach out? Obviously, we will share this in the show notes as well.
1: Sure. Uh, so the blog is called Mrs. Money Hacker. So MRS, Mrs. Money Hacker uh, dot com. And uh, yeah, there's a contact us page on the on the blog so they can reach out through there if they like. So the blog kind of uh, is, is looking at financial independence uh, in both Ireland and Canada because I have some investments in Canada, I am looking at, you know, tax efficiencies and estate planning and all that kind of stuff there. I think you had said, you know, in terms of your forex training, trading, if you calculated how much time you put into it, you'd be earning something like 50 cent per hour or something like that. I'd probably be earning less in terms of the amount of research and time I put into the blog posts. But it kind of started out just as a I'd like to keep track of what I'm researching myself and consolidate it. When you actually start to write about something and put it into the public, you realize there's actually a few gaps in your own knowledge. So it's been really good exercise for doing that.
0: Excellent. Finally, I know you've started uh, with Roger the Cork meetup group. So I've shared that on the show before, but obviously I will share that again. And if you'd like to meet Megan in person, then that is a great opportunity to go down and do that. I would highly recommend it, Megan, because you've got a lot of good knowledge to share on this stuff. So thank you again for being on the show. If anybody has wants to re- reach out, by all means, go to Megan's website or go to a meetup group. And uh, yeah, thank you again, Megan, for sharing all your knowledge.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. As you likely already know, the path to financial freedom starts with you taking action. If you have been inspired by my story, why not come and join me at one of my events? I attend meetups regularly and also host webinars every couple of weeks. Most of the events are free to attend. Visit www.firepodcast.ie and click on the events tab for more information. The link will also appear in the show notes.